coming up on this episode of Harmless. I need you to see what you're going to be dealing with and see if you can handle it. And so then he starts showing me these worst of the worst videos with the sound cranked up to see if I'm going to melt into the floor and go into the fetal position. Part of the problem, the reason that we suffer is because we shove the emotion and the feelings down, right? Because we think showing it is weakness. There's no way that this didn't impact me. You know what I mean? I may not understand or consciously know, but there's no way. One of the most healing things you can do is actually allow yourself to feel the feelings and actually live in the moment of the feeling and not panic about it and just let it happen. Welcome to Harmless the Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Oldenburg. And in this episode, Decoding Distress, we're going to be talking with one of my favorite people in this fight, a very well-known man by the name of Jim Cole. Now, I'm not going to tell you too much about Jim Cole because I would rather you hear it from him. We're going to hear in this episode how he went from being a law enforcement officer in a tribal community to being an internationally known and recognized person in the fight against child sexual exploitation. Jim is so special to me in this world for a very particular reason. Jim is one of the few people in this fight that has influenced every single facet of these investigations from the victims first, all the way to the mental health and the people fighting the fight. Jim's passion and lifelong efforts in this field are absolutely commendable. And I am so proud to call this man my friend. So without further ado, I give you Jim Cole. So first off, how did you go from being a police officer to investigating crimes against children? I, I, was, a, I was actually a police officer on a Native American reservation in Oregon after getting out of the army and started there in 1986. Because of my experience as an investigator in the army, I was quickly brought over to the detective division. I was an army counterintelligence agent. So I worked national security crimes and, and had a decent amount of investigative experience and training. It's interesting because the most police departments in a town, the population of 35 to 3,700 are going to have three and a half police officers, right? We had 35 police officers and seven and a half detectives just to give you a, a, a the problems, right? And like drugs and alcohol were serious issues. And it was, I say town, but the area that we had to cover was the size of a, a large county. It was a thousand square miles, right? And it had a major state highway that ran right through the middle of it. So we had all kinds of the things that that would bring. So well, the, the detectives noticed that my reports were a little bit more thorough and were, I would take cases a little further from the patrol side because of my previous investigative experience. And so I was approached to, to come over to detectives early and went over one of the things that we investigated in the detective division were child 
both physical abuse and child sexual abuse. I was working in the mid nineties at this point. We did not have a lot of technology facilitated crime. I never saw one single case while I was working for the tribal police of child sexual abuse material. Not one. Now, in hindsight, was, was that because maybe we, one, weren't looking for it, right? But computers were not heavily prevalent in homes, or if they were, they were fairly rudimentary. I think that's part of it. And cell phones weren't really, everybody didn't have a cell phone in their pocket back then either. It was probably in my, my late twenties, early thirties at that point. I, I don't know that I recognize it, it's, we worked these cases and we were overwhelmed by it, right? And we had a tribal CPS and referrals would come in on a fax machine. And that fax machine would be out of paper constantly. And, and because there was a ton, this would also include, include neglect. There's just a ton of neglect issues. There was a ton of, and again, the physical abuse and, the, and, and of course the sexual abuse. And it wasn't my primary job to work child sexual abuse. We had usually had an investigator who's, that's all they did, that we would help out. We had general crimes. Then I went and worked narcotics for a while. It was probably the funnest time in my career, to be honest. And that was multi-jurisdictional. So that was the entire central Oregon area, like 16 counties. So that gave me a ton of freedom. I was all over the place working with really great detectives and federal agencies, and it, and it was great. What I did realize was we weren't making a difference. I was having a ton of fun. It was incredibly rewarding from that standpoint, but we're taking off a drug dealer and man, there's three to replace the one almost immediately. Yeah, you're taking some dope off the street. Yeah, you're taking down this dude, but man, it just, we, it didn't feel like we were making a difference. It took me a while to realize that too. After that, I worked violent crime, which was homicides and adult sexual assaults and physical assault, stabbings and shootings and, and any type of unattended death, right? So suicides to vehicular homicides to you name it. There became a point where, man, I got tired of standing over dead bodies. You're a homicide detective and you think, okay, man, I've reached the pinnacle. Everybody aspired to be a homicide detective. And it's like the most important and it's justice for those who cannot, you know, 9-11 happens and the federal agencies start hiring like crazy and opportunity arose. So I applied to, to the U.S. Customs Service because my experience on the reservation is unique. We do a ton of federal cases, like all felonies go to federal court. So we're prosecuting homicides in federal court, which is really a rare circumstance. I was an FBI task force officer with federal credentials. And so I, I knew the federal statutes and the federal criminal procedure very well. That made me very competitive for these positions. I ended up getting interviews for 14 different offices and ended up taking Portland, Oregon within the U.S. Customs Service. So quick question about that. Yeah. Why did you select customs? Why was that your choice? Of, or did you apply to all the different federal agencies? I, what I did is I applied to everybody. I was trying to OSI, I was applying to, you know, the, I applied to the FBI, I applied to everybody. And it was a shotgun approach. I get youngins coming to me now saying, hey, I want to be a federal agent. I'm like, don't set your sight on one agency. Apply to them all, right? The reason that customs worked out was they had gotten a special hiring authority after 9-11 because they were going through a lot of retirement attrition 
And now 9-11 ramped up this need for agents at all at the same time. So they were hiring, again, senior level agents, and they were hiring at pretty much every, they had a ton of positions open, but instead of one job announcement, they literally opened a job posting for every location. So they ended up with 136 job openings for 136 locations around the country. And you had to apply for every one separate. And I'll never forget, I'm applying for these. I've got a Word document because every application is the same with all of the answers. And I'm just literally going into the online form, copy and paste into this thing. And it was like 136 times it was mind numbing. So each of the locations was screening their, their own applications and resumes. And then they were reaching out to their top candidates to do interviews. So I ended up doing 14 interviews with 14 different offices. I did not want to go to a really big city where the cost of living is super high. You have to live two hours outside the city to be able to afford my commute. So I ended up getting like Nogales, Arizona was one. And man, I had been stationed at Fort Huachuca, Arizona. I knew the area pretty well. I'm like, again, it's a lot of dope work on the border, drugs for the custom service. So I ended up in Portland, which worked out really well. And I did not choose to work child exploitation. It was a complete happenstance. I, I ended up rolling into the office. They, the way that customs worked, it still does, is before you go to the federal academy, you will report to your office for anywhere from one week to a month while the academy date lines up at the tribal police. They actually put us through the federal law enforcement training center, and I only had to go through the custom specific side of it. And so they started giving me very simple background investigations and what we call customs broker investigations. And I'm sitting in my office one day and I hear my boss cursing. I'm in the office next to him and I pop my head around and I hear his phone smash against the back of his door, shatter into a bunch of plastic pieces. Can't get this damn memo. So every time I hit enter, all the stuff I want in the middle goes to the left in Word. And I'm like, let me take a look. And so I sit down and I format the memo for him and I fix it. I'm like, okay, good to go, hit enter. It all stays where it's supposed to. He's bewildered. He looks at me, yeah, he's like, you're a technology guy. Like formatting a Word document makes me a technology guy, sure. But I was, I legitimately have always been a technology kind of early adopter and one of those guys. And so I was like, hey, yeah. I know where I'm gonna put you now. I'm like, Okay. And he's, he's listen, Ben Hicks, who was the child exploitation guru in Portland at the time. And back then we called it, it was called CP, right? We didn't call it child exploitation. So that everything was the CP guy. And so my boss said to me, he's like, Ben Hicks has been doing CP forever. He's going to retire eight months. And I've been racking my brain. Who am I going to replace him? with? I think you're it. And so here's what I need you to do. I need you to go get with Ben. And I need you to just sponge off Ben, learn everything he knows. And so then he calls Ben down to his office. He's like, hey, I know you already met the new guy, Jim, but you're, like, he's a technology guy and all this stuff's on the internet now because when Dale started and when Ben started, there was no internet, right? Child exploitation, all this was in books and magazines and films and 
tape and then VHS tape. It was being smuggled into the country, usually from Europe or Asia. It was customs and postal were the two primary agencies because it was either coming in through the mail or it was being smuggled in through a port. And so Ben was one of these guys who was doing these old school undercovers where he's meeting people and exchanging like money for magazines or money for tapes in cardboard boxes and, and stuff coming in in shipping containers and like all this stuff where they were working with postal where someone's receiving it to the postal and they were doing controlled deliveries. People tell us they can control deliveries basically where they get this anticipatory search for it. And then they dress up like the postal person and deliver the package to the person. And once they accept yeah. it and it goes in the door, then the search warrant becomes legally active and then they execute the search warrant. But the search warrant's basically like dormant until this triggering action. And once the package goes in, that's the triggering action. Then they basically walk away, they get the team and they go hit the place, usually within 15 yeah. minutes or so. They, and oftentimes we would put, we would put a device on the package that would let us know that the package was opened and a beacon would go off. We'd be sitting there with these radio waiting for the beacon to go off in the car. And so I came into this when that was still a thing. We were doing those with the postal. It wasn't really coming in like smuggling at the port anymore, but it was CD. So it was like, now we had child exploitation material being purchased from Eastern European criminal organizations that figured out that there was a lot of money to be made in this. And they had a website where you could buy these CDs and then they would ship them in the mail to you. And we did a ton of those cases. So I just started learning this kind of from the ground up. I'll never forget this. Ben was a little skeptical because Ben knows, like he already knows like, all right, here's the boss telling me that this new guy is going to come work in this crime type, right? But Ben knows that he, they have to look at the worst crap that's work at children being raped and are they horrifically yeah. abused. One of the first things that Ben does within a couple of days, Ben calls me down to this room with two computers in it where he would do forensics in his lab and then he would take it in there so the agents could review their cases. And he took me in there and basically it's like, all right, you want to do this, but first I need you to see what you're going to be dealing with and see if you can handle it. And so then he starts showing me these worst of the worst videos with the sound cranked up to see if I'm going to melt into the floor and go into the fetal position because then he's like, well, this guy's not going to work. I remember there not knowing what to expect. I had never seen child sexual abuse material, right? I'd seen lots of dead bodies and lots of horrific things, but I had never seen that. I'm standing there and he does it. And I just remember in my brain going, I am not going to flinch. You know what I mean? I am not going to show weakness. I'm just going to, okay, whatever. I've seen horrible shit, so bring it up kind of thing. I remember seeing it and it was like, oh, okay, yes, yeah, it's terrible crap. But at the same time, something within me, and I, and I, I actually talked to uh, a clinician later on about this. Everybody's different, right? Everybody deals with trauma differently. Everybody processes these things. I do believe that my time as a homicide detective helped me. I was able 
compartmentalized. And I am fortunately one of the folks that like never had a flashback, right? I've talked to people who they're in the kitchen making dinner and some segment of material that they've seen just goes into their brain and they cannot get it out. Or even yeah. worse, I've talked to people who are having intimate, the worst possible moment, they're in an intimate relationship with, with their other half. And, and then th that stuff would come in their head. And that's never happened to me, fortunately. Yeah. What were you expecting to see when he queued up the video? It's funny. I think like in your brain, you don't know what you don't know. Right. And so you, in my mind, I'm like, okay, I'm going to see a naked kid. I'm going to see it's like, we, we, but I really didn't know what to expect, to be honest. I, I just couldn't really even fathom what it was going to be. And then, you know, he shows this stuff. And to be honest with you, we're talking at this point, it's early 2003 at this yep. point. The worst of the worst then doesn't compare to the worst of the worst now. It just, people have become way more depraved. And it's almost, there's this effort in the community to one-up the worst of the worst and make it worse and worse, right? I want to unpack that a little bit real quick. When he exposed you to the worst of the worst, in hindsight, do you believe... That was the way to expose you? Or do you no, think it would have been more no, prudent to expose so, you slowly? Yeah, so I know it's not the way. And I, again, just very fortunate. HSI hired a clinician who had this track record in another agency of starting a peer support program and getting use of the employee assistant program increased by its employees by an order of magnitude. In the federal government, there's this thing called the EAP or Employee Assistance Program. Any employee could call this number at any time for any like problem, right? I'm having marital problems. I'm having these types of issues. Like I'm having these nightmares. I'm having struggling with whatever. It's free care and referrals. And, it, and it's actually a decent program. Now, there was a time where employees wouldn't use it because there was a stigma like, then my boss is going to find out and I'm going to get fired. Or I'm going to lose my security clearance. And there was a point in time where that was true. And that then tainted the, then it changed the law. The clinician gets hired, I want to say 2010 or 11. His name is Dr. Ken Milton. And he comes over to, to the parent agency of HSI. And his job is to basically set up a health and well-being program for the agency which included this peer support program that had worked so well at the Border Patrol. That's where he originally started this peer support program. And the Border Patrol saw massive benefits to the program. And so he comes over, starts this thing. He's just one guy with this monumental task. Even though the issues with the EAP kind of happened in the 80s and 90s, the really bad issues with it, the stigma just persisted. Right. And so very few people will ever call the EAP, right? Very few people. One of his jobs was to increase that. Like if you need it, you should call it. And so he started this program. It, it was hugely successful. So we, he started the, the peer support program and they specifically trained employees within the agency to be a first responder to mental well-being issues, right? They went through this very intense training program and they had the same confidentiality rules as a psychologist has. 
So if you're an employee, you go to someone in that peer support role and, and they're not just your colleague, but you, you say, hey, break that confidentiality, uh, but under extreme circumstances, like you're gonna hurt someone or yourself, right? There's imminent, like then they can intervene, they can report that. But otherwise it was just as strict as going to see a doctor or a psychologist. And the program was very successful. It took a bit, but it was very stressful. He then, as he's going around talking to employees, learns about the child exploitation mission and recognizes that, that there's an additional piece just because of that work. And so he creates another program within the peer support program called the Armor Program, specifically for child exploitation folks that are working in that region. So digital forensics folks are exposed to content, the agents that are exposed to content, and then that would expand even more into victim assistance folks are dealing with the victims and because it's all vicarious trauma. As that program was spinning up in 2012, I had left Portland and gone back to our cyber crime center at the headquarters to stand up our victim identification program. And so I happened to be there and got heavily involved with helping to stand up that armor program with writing the policy meeting with Dr. Ken all the time and, and going through all these things. And over time, that program becomes extremely robust. Today, within HSI, there's an entire unit dedicated to that program. It's not just one guy anymore. There are now six clinicians that are regionally spread out. There's about 300 Armor Peer Support Program folks around the country now. They respond if there's a traumatic incident at an office a really difficult case. These folks will deploy to that office, spend a week there, talk to, just be available for the employees. Just And the other piece to it is the Pierce, the armor personnel, we have, they call these things musters, but quarterly, everybody who works child exploitation has to participate in a muster. And this muster can be, hey, we're all gonna go bowling and we're just, and we're just gonna hang out and, but there you usually be some opportunity to almost have a group therapy session as part of that. There'll be a sit down and they're like, okay, hey, now we're going to go boom. Now, I know you had a perspective where you were involved in it. How was it perceived by people outside of your field, the armor program? I think there was, I think the perception were varied. I think certain people thought, look, certain managers were like, I'm paying for people to go bowling. Like these people are on the clock. What was this nonsense? And my drug guys don't get to go do that. Yeah, you know I mean, it, it just and so I think it, it it depended upon the experience of the manager, the executive. Because if they worked this crime type, they probably understood it a little better. If they did it, yeah. then then they didn't, right? But to be honest with you, there are even perceptions with, with folks that did work the crime type that were varied, right? They there were some people like, I don't need that. I'm not, I don't, you know, there are people who resisted, like, I don't want to go to this group therapy yeah. session. I don't need to go to, I don't, and those are just fear. Those are just like inherent human fear of being vulnerable. We had this program within HSI that we stood up in 2012 that where we take service disabled veterans and they go through this kind of selection process, they apply to the program. And then we train them to be child exploitation, digital forensic examiners. They go to this very intense child exploitation course, three weeks long. And then they go through this nine week 
digital forensics certification course. And at the end of that, they, they get assigned to one of our field offices for 10 months where they work as OJT training with a mentor. And if they're successful at the end of it, we hire them as a federal employee with HSI to be a digital forensic examiner, primarily working child exploitation. And I'm like, man, now we're taking these kind of non-agents and we're gonna be exposing them because I was getting them into my victim ID lab. And so I developed this like slow progression of exposure instead of what happened to most of us, right? That started earlier on, yeah. on this crime type. And later on in the armor program, they understood that they needed something like that to be programmatic, not just I'm doing this ad hoc. So then I became tasked with developing that program for the agency. The formal name of that is the operational readiness program. The informal name of that was become is the CSAM inoculation. Hey, we're giving you this inoculation slowly over time. There's a PowerPoint and working with other armor peer support program members and two clinicians. We develop this whole thing that kind of takes you from erotica and then slowly takes you up to where it does get to the more extreme video with sound. But along the way, there are grounding exercises. There's one-on-one -on -one time with a peer support armor member. This happens over a couple of weeks, right? And then after exposure, there's a debriefing, but the following day, there's a more in-depth briefing in the morning because now you had all 24 hours to process. So there's this, and that's all built into this thing now so that we are not just pushing people into the deep end. To be honest with you, as I look back on it, as difficult as the material, as difficult as the things that I've had to see, I count myself one of the lucky ones. It's because I have personally been directly involved in the safeguarding of a child. What a lot of people would call rescue, right? Like I've literally gone into a home because of a case that I've developed and stopped an ongoing abuse from occurring with that child an ability to pull that kid out of that, hold the offender accountable and remove the child from the abuse and then get the child started on a recovery journey. Then I'm not very involved with after, right? There's a lot of other pieces that need to do their part. As part of this journey of, of talking to you, I think we'll talk about one of the cases that had that you're aware of, you've seen me do the presentation, but had an indelibly profound impact on me and of the survivor of which I'm still in contact with. That's we have awesome. really interesting conversations about that, right? Like it's, it, which is blow, still blows my mind. And, and I've been very fortunate to actually have contact with survivors and surviving family of several of my cases. And wow. which is, not common. I wouldn't call it terribly common, but I, I've had, call it whatever you want. I've had the ability to truly be genuinely empathetic and compassionate and respectful to those people through the process. And they, they recognize that 
And that resonates with them to the point that they feel the need to reach back out to me. And that's happened in numerous points in my career where I can remember I'm at the Cyber Crime Center in the early days in 2012, and literally my desk phone rings, which is, that's not an easy phone to get to. I'm going to tell you, and, and my desk phone yeah. rings and I'm like, oh, hello. And it's, it's this mother of a kid. I arrested her husband um, for production and, and her children were, were part of this ordeal. And she's, I don't know if you remember me or not, but this is who I am. And you arrested my husband, Paul. And I immediately knew who it was. Like I immediately, of course. and it, it immediately takes me back to the case, right? I'm immediately yeah. standing on their doorstep. Like the first time that I encountered the family, right? And I'm yeah. like, yeah, of course I remember. And she's, I just wanted to let you know, like how we are. And I felt, she's like, I saw you on the news and you were in this news story. So I have been calling all over DHS to get your phone number, any number I could find. I've been calling for a week because I finally died you. She's like, I can't believe it's you. And I'm just like, wow. She's like, she's my daughter is, she's now 14 and she was six. Like when this all happened, she's and my yeah. oldest son is this and that, and they're doing really well. And she's like, would you want to meet for coffee? And so I was like, yeah. And it's like crazy. And now I'm super fortunate that still very connected to that family. She's actually attending an extremely well-known university that happens to be in, in my town. And so we get to see her all the time and support my wife and I, and that's been a incredibly satisfying thing. And this kid is incredibly, she got a full ride scholarship to one of the toughest universities in the country. Really difficult to get into this school. And that's how well she's doing. And so going back to why we started on this is because I have had the ability to not just see, but experience the upside of the horrific crap we have to see. Like I, I see, I've seen like the glow of the light at the end of the tunnel and be able to bask in it. Not everybody gets to do that, but I think it's incredibly healing. And I think it's why I would call myself fortunate. I've had to see horrific stuff. I recently wrote a blog post about one of the most difficult things I've ever had to see, what I would consider one of the worst of worst. And in the victim identification community it is very well known for the same thing. I, I often describe the community of child exploitation like an onion, right? And I know that's overused sometimes, but when you look at the layers of an onion, like at the very core of that onion is where I would call victim ID folks. Because number one, it's a very small niche of the broader child exploitation community. And it, it's the discipline that has to expose themselves to the material the most because the whole nature of victim ID is really waiting. Like you're just waiting right into the, the image, the video, and, and we have to listen to the audio. Just so you understand, a standard investigator is gonna wade through every picture and video on an offender's device. 
whether it's a, a, a part of a website, whether it's a, a block, whether it's a, a picture they took, an icon, everything, yeah. as well as all the pornography that is on that, yeah. all the adult pornography on the offender's computer. When a, someone is doing victim identification, all that additional noise has been taken away, and now they are focused specifically on the imagery, on the material. Right. And not only do they have to look at the material, but they have to study it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like your ICAC investigators and the folks that are investigating this crime type, they often won't listen to the audio, right? They, they, they don't need to. And as you're well aware of, one of the main tools we use in this, the audio is off by default for a reason to protect the investigator. Because to be honest with you, the audio can be worse than the visual. But in victim ID, every clue is important. Not only are we listening to the audio, but in my in our lab, you know, $2,500 high audiophile headphones with this big box to process the audio so that it was as clean and crisp as it could possibly be, right? So like we're listening to it over and over and over and over and over, right? You can't just you can't just listen to it one time. And be like, oh yeah, I got all this. Like you're, and, and sometimes there's a piece of it that you'll put on a loop and just play it over and over, trying to figure out what is that word. That's out. As an examiner, we have to sit and describe the imagery. But like you said, you have to do it in slow motion, and it takes a long time. But once you're done, once you're done describing it, you're done. Yeah. Victim identification brings that to a whole nother level where you are now studying, yeah. you are listening, you're cleaning, you are working towards finding yeah. the person in that imagery. I want to ask you this question, though. The way you were exposed to it initially, do you think that affected your resiliency? And, and how do victim identification people build that resiliency so they can wade through just the material? Right. I don't know that built resiliency. I don't think that's a good way to do it. But I do think that for whatever reason, I built up this resiliency that positively affected my ability to do this because I worked child exploitation and a good portion of that being victim identification for an entire 20 years. And as far as I know, have not suffered any serious ill effects. I say that not knowing what the future will hold. And interestingly enough, I am preventively going to see a therapist. This is all new. I literally just reached out to a referral today to set up an appointment because I said to myself, there's no way that this didn't impact me. I may not understand or consciously know, but there's no way that I did this for this long and saw the things I saw and heard the things I did and, and dealt with the things I did. And not only that, look, what it's not just the dealing with this material, uh, it's other things that happen in law enforcement. Like I've lost people. One of my hero forensic examiners who I trained in hero class number three, and then ended up coming out to the office that I would later join and, and be his supervisor, killed himself a month ago. Holy cow, I'm so sorry. Not only did that happen, but his girlfriend, whom he killed himself in front of, didn't know how to contact anybody at the office. 
she didn't have those connections. So she gets onto his phone after this happens and goes on to Facebook Messenger and messages me as him. I'm actually traveling at the time and I get this message from him and I'm looking at it and I'm going, this is not him. My first reaction to that is, his account got taken over and it's a scammer. As the first message is, hi, Jim, how are you doing? Which is very weird. Number one, I know that's not him. We don't communicate that way. You don't communicate or Facebook Messenger either. It would have been a text message. I'm just looking at it going, this is really weird. I'm about to just blow it off. And then it's, hey, this is his girlfriend. I really need to talk to somebody at the office. And I'm like, is he okay? And the response is no. So then I just, I, I like, what's your phone number? And I call her. And of course she's a mess. And then she's apologizing. And not only that, she's amazing. I just, I don't know how she got through this. Like it just literally happened within two feet of her in a very violent way. And she's apologizing to me and she's saying to me, I'm sorry for your loss. And I'm just like, like, I'm like, but she didn't, her brain, I think that was a coping mechanism to externalize it. That was her brain protecting her. When I was up at C3, we were co-located with the Northern Virginia ICAC, and we ended up having a detective who turned out to be an offender. And then when confronted about that, barricaded himself in his home with his mom and killed himself. Those situations are tough and just, and so in this entire like career of law enforcement and all those things and death and just, and not only that, there's so many situations where there's no upside. There's oftentimes where you leave a situation, right? You're forced, you've done everything you can do and it isn't enough, but you, there's nothing else you can do. And you're like walking away going like, this is yeah. doomed. Like this is, there, there is no upside and, and that's, that's life. And so all of that compounding over a 35 year career in total has got to fuck you up in some way. There's no way I came out of it. Just, oh, hey, I'm okay. And the other thing that happened, which is interesting. So we're in Australia at a conference and my wife who retired from the FBI after 28 years, and we met working these cases and we worked a horrific case together. We're in Australia with a bunch of other folks who recently retired from around the globe, actually. During one of the breaks, there, there's these conversations about things that are happening post-retirement, both physically and mentally to folks. And then what percolates up is everybody figured out they're all going through the same cracks. They're all having these both physical and emotional reactions. And it's usually a few months after retiring where it all starts to kick in. Yep. Been there. Yep. I know all about that. Yeah. And so they all figured it out and I'm looking at it going, I'm not going through that. Right? Like, why am I weird? They're all going through this. My wife is going through it. They're going through it. And I'm like, I'm the weird one. And so I'm like, when is the shoe going to drop? You know what I mean? Like, when is all that going to happen? I decided, I, I'm like, you know what? Instead of waiting until it happens, if it happens, why not just start 
talking to somebody now. And again, I, I credit my wife for that a lot, but also the other folks that yeah. are in that. The other thing I've been doing is writing. I have been writing these blog posts and I, I'm only a couple in, but I am finding it to be pretty cathartic. Does it bring up any feelings? Yeah, it does. And, and, and one of the things that I've learned also, again, thank to my wife and a couple others who have gone through this process, a couple different people have basically said the, the same thing to me is part of the problem, the reason that we suffer is because we shove the emotion and the feelings down, right? Because we think showing it is, is weakness. One of the most healing things you can do is actually allow yourself to feel the feelings and actually live in the moment of the feeling and not panic about it and just let it happen. And so I've been able to do that a little bit. I just had a profound experience on a trip I, talking about like how all these investigators who retire go into the same stuff. Someone I've known for a long time, I happened to be with them in a bar setting with a cold group of us and we're talking and he, I start talking a, a little bit about all this for whatever reason. And, and then he was like, oh, I saw it on his face like this. Oh yeah. I, I, okay. And so then we start talking about it and then man, in this, this moment of vulnerability standing in this crowded bar overseas, he, he starts to cry and he says to me, he's man, I'm having these issues where I can't stop crying and I'm this and this and this. And the two of us have this massive cry in the middle of the bar like literally embraced where I'm in tears, he's in tears and we're talking and I'm just, I'm like, dude, you are not alone. You are not alone. This is not, you are not abnormal. You're not alone. This is very normal. And you've got to let it, like you've got experiences. I'm encouraging to do the things that I know will help. Even to this day, there's like resistance. Another thing. That, that he said that resonated with me is, as I said, man, I, you gotta go talk to somebody. You gotta talk to a professional, right? You gotta, don't be afraid to do that. Don't like, like everybody, we're doing that. Like it's stigma and all the things, like you gotta go do it. What he said was the reason that he wasn't doing it was that he couldn't put, he's like, I don't wanna traumatize that person with my stuff. That's why the, he requires a specialist. And he's correct. He is absolutely correct. You need someone who specializes in whatever his issue is. Now, what feelings did it bring up with you? Because you've been pushing them down or having them compartmentalized. It's not that I don't get emotional. I don't see that as a, so I am not depressed. I don't have the anxiety. I don't have the, the flashbacks and the nightmares. None of those issues are happening to me. So I'm incredibly fortunate, right? I'm not saying I wish were because I see how that impacts people. I would venture to say everybody who's done this work has worked around people that are like you. I know several people that could be clinical about all of it. They could be completely clinical when they're doing the work. I'm knowing that their brain's still taking it in. Your brain is still perceiving it, whether or not you're feeling it, whether or not you're in the moment, whether or not you're even paying attention to it, your brain is still taking it in. 
When did conversations about mental health come up back when you first started doing these investigations? Boy, it, di it didn't come up. Yeah, it didn't really come up in Portland hardly at all. It just wasn't something we talked about. It really didn't start coming up until I got back to headquarters in 2010 and I reported it in 2011. 2010 is when they hired Dr. Ken. And so it started becoming like a thing. Now, what I will say is the only mental well-being thing that, that anybody ever talked about was headquarters had been running this program for a while with a psychologist who was doing the Minnesota multiphasic personality inventory, the MMPI. It was like three different inventories they would do. And then you would have to go sit with him to go over the results of that. And you would go back to C3 to usually it was the online undercover course where they would run everybody in the course through that, right? And it was completely worthless. It, it failed to do any, any, there were no results to that whatsoever. I think the idea was that they were screening people to see if you were going to be an okay undercover mentally. But in the entire course of that program, like over seven years, not one person was ever screened out. Not one time did they come back and go, hey, Johnny here should not be doing undercover. Not one time. Nor did it ever assist anybody. Now, I did have one person tell me, interestingly enough, that they had gone through the MMPI. They then went and had the half hour conversation with the doc. And as a result of that half an hour conversation with the doc actually said, hey, I think you ought to go get checked out for, it was some form of cancer. And they did and they had it. And they caught it early enough that it literally saved their life. I had nothing good to say about that particular doctor until I heard that story. And I was like, at least there's that. It saved a life. So I guess it's worth it. But it never accomplished like what the goals of the program were ever. And so it was just a big waste of time and money, to be honest. So that was the only mental health that we had prior to that. And it wasn't mental health. It wasn't until kind of this 2011, 2012, where we start to develop this armor program that we really start talking about this in any kind of serious way. Thank you for listening to Decoding Distress with Jim Cole, the first of many interviews that you are going to get to hear from him. In the next episode of Harmless, I'm going to interview a close friend of mine who is an Arizona State Superior Court judge. Back in 2001, when I began investigating these offenses, he was the prosecutor I submitted my cases to, and he is now a judge. He has an amazing perspective on the mental health ramifications of not only those investigating these crimes, but those having to take these crimes through the judiciary system. I'm looking forward to releasing his extremely candid and very insightful two-part interview on Harmless the Podcast. And as always, if you know somebody that needs to hear this podcast, please do not hesitate to send it to them. If they need to hear it anonymously, send me an email to harmlessthepodcast at gmail.com and I will make sure they get it. Your action just may save somebody.